Welcome to the sermon podcast for Restoration Nazarene Church, where we encourage you to be the gospel today so that you can share the gospel tomorrow. A few weeks ago, I took my high schoolers out to uh, this big field for a classroom game of wiffle ball. You know what wiffle ball is? Like baseball, but with a skinny bat and the ball with a hole in it. Uh, So we took all the high schoolers out and come to find out there were several of them that didn't know how to play baseball. They didn't know the the basic rules of baseball. So we we divided them into two teams. We explained all the rules of of how the game works. And then we began playing and it it was going fairly well. And then this kid steps up to the bat. Now this kid, he's 17 and he's probably 6'5", towers over me, super skinny. And I don't think he has an ounce of athletic anything in his body, but he, he was trying. And so he steps up to the bat, they throw it, he swings and it's a miss. They throw it again, he swings and it's a miss. And his team, yes, his, that's where they get the name from, right? Um, his team starts cheering him on and saying, you can do this, you can do this. And so he, he, he gets ready, they throw the ball again. This time he makes contact and it goes pretty far out to the field. So this is his first time ever playing. So he runs to first base, does well and goes round to second base. And as he's headed to third base, his team is cheering him on, go home, go home, go home. So he makes it to third base and then runs immediately to his team on the sidelines, never comes to home plate. And unfortunately, the other team caught up by now, got him out. And we apparently failed to tell him all of the rules. We we had very clearly stated that the rule was to get around all of the bases, but we forgot to tell him that the last base is where you started home plate. We failed to clearly define the end goal. And sometimes I think in life we do the same thing. We, we forget to clearly define what our end goal is. And so we go through these seasons of life where we are rounding the bases, but we forget why we are doing it. We, we forget the importance of that. And sometimes as a church, we get so focused on the activities of the church and the busy work of church that we forget the end goal. We forget our mission. So what is our mission? What is it that we are actually doing? Why have we been pursuing this this merging together of two congregation bodies? As Pastor Brian said this morning, why did you weather this insane storm to come here this morning to church? What direction are we actually headed in? I think sometimes we forget what our mission is. And I'll be honest to say that sometimes I get caught up in all of the busy work of ministry and so caught up that I lose sight of what is important. I get so focused on building the church that I lose sight of why we are building the church. And as a pastor, I get all sorts of of ads and people trying to sell me things. And 
Typically, once they find out that, that I have a church, somehow they get my, my name and mailing list and I get emails after emails. And the most common that I receive is resources or strategies on how to build the church. Their slogan is usually how to grow from 100 to 1,000. And they have books and workshops and trainings and things that you can attend to learn how to do this. And the idea is that they think that they have this strategy of how we can grow a church from 100 to 1,000. And usually somewhere on their advertisements, they will reference uh, the, the story in Acts chapter 2 where Peter, this apostle Peter, he stands up and he preaches this message. And it says in Acts 2:41, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 people after one sermon. Now, if the mission of the church is to grow and increase in numbers, then I think we should figure out why or how the early church grew like that. But my question is, is the mission of the church to grow in numbers? Is that the true mission of the church? See, I think there's some context that, that's really needed here for this passage, context about what God was doing and what the mission was, which if you can follow me for a moment, it requires a, a quick one-minute overview of the entire Bible. Going back to the beginning with Genesis, it, it, it starts with this creation of the world where God created everything perfectly. He created Adam and Eve to live in this perfect harmony with each other and with God. But in order for God to create a perfect love relationship, he had to give them free will. And as a result of their free will, they used that to eventually sin, which then resulted in this fall, this separation between God and humanity. And from that moment on, creation was moaning and groaning, pain and suffering entered the world. There was now this void that lives in every single person, this, this emptiness inside because we are missing that relationship with God. But the Bible doesn't end there. God has a plan for, for redemption and restoration. He promised the people a savior, a Messiah to bridge that gap. And part of God's plan was to create a, a holy nation and these people that were set apart whom eventually the Messiah would come through. And so God makes a promise with this nation of Israel to be these holy, these chosen people to eventually bring forth the Messiah that would come to save them. And so God sets forth this mission for them through this promise. And, and God says in Leviticus 19, 2, he gives this command. He says, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Their mission was to be holy. And the reason was so that they would be ready for the future Messiah. So while they are waiting for this future Messiah to come, they needed to be holy as God is holy. But how do you actually be holy as God is holy? God knew that there would be a, a question about this, that there would be a struggle to fully understand all of this. So God gave them several laws to follow. 
Laws that would transform them into a holy nation. Laws that would undo all of the chaos that had come before. Laws that would help them be holy, help them love God and love neighbor. Again, their mission was to be holy as God is holy. But unfortunately, as you read the Old Testament, you see that they failed miserably time and time again. They would lose sight of their mission. They would lose sight of their purpose. They began to to take these laws and they would follow what the law was written rather than the intent behind the law. But then Jesus comes, the Messiah, the Savior. Only he didn't come as they expected him to come. They expected this Messiah to come full of power, full of might to come from heaven to restore Israel, to overthrow all of the corruption in the world and to save their people. But instead, Jesus comes as a baby. And then he grows up and he spends his time with the outcasts, with the sinners, with the tax collectors. He helped people in need. And he had unique ways of teaching and pushing boundaries that made the Jewish leaders nervous. On one occasion, the the Jewish leaders, they, they tried to trap Jesus. And so as recorded in Matthew 22, 35 through 40, it says, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him in this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law. Now keep in mind, there are a lot of laws, 613 laws that they would have to follow. So they asked Jesus, of all 613, which one is the greatest? And Jesus replied by quoting Deuteronomy. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he gives them a second by quoting Leviticus. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Again, their mission as this holy nation of Israel was to be holy as God is holy. And the way that they did that was by loving God and loving neighbor. And if our mission is the same today, If our mission is to be holy as God is holy by loving God and loving neighbor, then there's no better example of how to do that than God himself in the form of Jesus. Our mission then is to be like Christ. And this is what we see Paul say throughout his letters in the New Testament. Romans 8, 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we all are being transformed into his image. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul continues, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. It's all about being like Christ, being transformed into his image. So how do we do this? Paul gives us that answer as well. Ephesians 5, 1, ESV version. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. I have a a nephew that is obsessed with sports. 
He watches sports all the time. He's 10 years old. All he does is watch sports. He has favorite teams and favorite players, so much so that if his team loses, he cries about it. He is that invested in his teams. And he always wears his his favorite player's jersey. He watches how they play. He studies every move and then tries to mimic those moves as he then goes out to play. In his mind, they are the best. And if he wants to be the best someday, then he must imitate what they do and how they do it. This is what Paul is saying. We must be imitators of Jesus Christ. We must do what he did. We must live like Christ did. So then how do we imitate Jesus? It begins with us loving God and loving neighbor, but there is more to it. We must study who Jesus was and then act like him. We must study what Jesus taught and follow these commands. And this is the context that is important for us to understand with this passage in Acts and what is going on in this early church. This is what's going on. All of this context leading up to this point, the the disciples, they were faithful in following the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus, which led to the growth that we just read about. See, Jesus, the Messiah, he surrendered his life for us. He died on the cross for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus bridged that gap that existed between God and all of humanity. But he didn't just die. The story doesn't end with his death. He then defeated death. He rose from the grave and made it possible for us to experience him forever, today in this life and in the life to come. And after he rose from the grave, before ascending into heaven, he gave his true followers a mission. He gave them two things to follow. The first is found in Matthew's gospel before ascending into heaven. It says in Matthew's gospel, uh, chapter 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now this originally sounds like it's a list of several things for them to do. They must go, they must, uh, they, they must make disciples, they must baptize people, they must teach people. But it's really only one command When we look at the original language of how it's actually stated, there is only one primary command, one primary verb, which is to make disciples. The other verbs are just supporting this one. The other ones to go, to baptize, to teach, they are all supporting this one primary mission, this one primary command, which is to make disciples disciples. And the way that they make disciples is by going and baptizing and teaching. This is the first command that Jesus gives the true followers. The second is found in Acts 1, starting in verse 4. He gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, 
but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. This gift is talking about the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus said would come after he left. Again, Jesus gave them this command to go and make disciples. But first, before they can do that, they must wait for the Holy Spirit. They must wait for the movement of God. So they wait in Jerusalem. And then Acts 2 tells about how this gift of the Spirit came upon them, empowering and equipping them. And the Spirit came in such a loud noise that everybody that was gathered in Jerusalem for this big festival, everybody from all nations and all tribes and all languages, they all heard this noise and they came to see what all the commotion was about. And then the followers of Christ, they began speaking in languages that they did not know, but were the languages of all the tribes that were gathered there that day. And then Peter stands up among them and he preaches this message about Jesus Christ. And as we read earlier, after that, 3,000 people believed and were baptized. Jesus gives these, these true followers, these true disciples, these two primary commands that they must wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. They must wait for God to move first. And then they make disciples by going and baptizing and teaching. And this is exactly what the disciples do, which caused the church to grow from 100 to 3,000. But there is more. Acts 2, starting in verse four, uh, 42, right after the verse about adding 3,000 people, it, it paints us this picture of what the, the life of the church was like. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And again, it's important for us to remember that these people were from all over, different nations, different cultures, different traditions. But all of these people were united together. They had everything in common. They were gathered together every single day. But there's something even more important to point out here. God is the one who did this in the early church. This passage points to the work of God, not of humans. It wasn't the disciples that did anything. This was the result of God's work, his work of salvation in the people. God is the one that built the church. God is the one that gathered the people together. Everything that this passage describes reflects the movement of God among the believers in bringing about God's purposes among them. This passage is describing what God was doing in the early church. See, the truth is that God gets all the glory here. God is the one that was fruitful. And God was fruitful because the disciples were 
faithful. God was fruitful because the disciples were faithful. The disciples were faithful to the mission. Again, the main mission is to be like God, to be like Christ. And the way that we are like Jesus is by loving God and loving neighbor and obeying all of the commands that he has for us. And Jesus commanded these disciples to patiently wait for his movement. How often do we receive a call from God to do something, but first he says you must wait. How good are we at waiting for God to make the move first, to not rush his plan, to not take things into our own hands, but to allow him to be the one that is moving, to allow it to be his plan, not ours. We are simply people that join along God's mission in the world. These disciples, they waited patiently for God to move first. And the moment that he moved, they were ready and prepared to make disciples by going and baptizing and teaching. And that's what they did. They waited for the movement of God and then they faithfully followed the mission. And not only were these disciples faithful, but all of these new believers, these 3,000 plus people, they responded faithfully as well. And I want you to notice how they responded faithfully. In verse 42 of chapter two, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. It says that these believers, they, they devoted themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. But notice, if you can put uh, verse 42 back up on the screen, notice that it's, it's broken up into two pairs that they have. The first pair is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. The teaching would have been primarily about what Jesus taught them. And fellowship describes this bond between the people of the community. And these two things paired together makes an important note of what it means to come together, to learn together. It describes the process of coming and gathering and learning together through word and fellowship. And the second pair is devoting themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And breaking of bread means two things in this passage. It, it references the sacrament of communion, but also refers to the shared meals together in fellowship. And prayer means that they prayed on their own individually, but they also prayed together as they broke bread together, as they shared in fellowship together, they were praying together. These early believers were responding to God faithfully by really doing three things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. And they devoted themselves to prayer. And as they responded faithfully to God, God then responded fruitfully to them. He continued to add to their numbers daily. 
But not only did God add to their numbers, he also strengthened them together. He united them together. Though they were diverse, they were united together under Christ. And this, this unity together did not come because the people did anything. It didn't come because the people sought it. Unity among them happened because they had a common focus, which was being faithful to God as they lived like Christ. We are in a state now as a church where we are combining two different groups of people together. Each group has their own traditions, their own ways of doing church. Unity among us will only happen when we have a shared focus of remaining faithful to God together, by living like Christ together. And as we are faithful, individually and together, as we are faithful, God will be fruitful. See, the true mission of God, the, the true mission of the church is to be a gathered group of people that are responding to God faithfully by living like Christ. We believe that God is alive and active in the world. God is always moving and doing things in our midst. And it is our job to respond faithfully to him. And the way that we do that is through this simple strategy that we find in Acts. The row, the circle, the chair. For those of you that have been here for several years, this will sound familiar to you. But it's a good time for us to, to refocus together on the mission of God, to refocus on our mission as Christians. The row, the circle, the chair is simple. We come together as the church and we sit in a row. We listen to the word of God through the knowledge and, and ordained giftings of the pastors, just like how the believers devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. And then we move from the row, we move to the circle, the community of our gathered people by focusing on fellowship. We take what we learn from the row and go deeper together in our small groups, in our Bible studies, over shared meals together. And from the row to the circle, we then move to the chair, our personal time with Christ in prayer, reflecting on what we learned in the row and what we discussed in the circle. In other words, we are intentional about being faithful to God as we live like Jesus Christ together. Over the coming weeks, we will dig deeper into what this looks like. But for now, I want you to hold on to this vision of what it could look like, of what God might do in and through us if we devote ourselves to being faithful to him, if we devote ourselves to following his leading, if we devote ourselves to living like Jesus, though we are diverse, we can find unity through a shared focus of living like Jesus while we remain faithful to God. Can you imagine what might happen if we remain united together? Can you imagine what God might do through us, through, through our church, to further his mission in this community around us? 
Can you imagine what God might do through you as you live like Christ and as you remain faithful to him? One of the ways that that we can be united together as we refocus ourselves on being faithful to Christ is by breaking the bread of communion together. Because as we remember what Christ did for us on the cross and we come together to receive the elements of grace, we all come together waiting in line together receiving the elements together on equal ground. And then we are sent from this table, sent out into the world together so that we together can live faithful lives to Christ. From the row to the circle to the chair. As we receive communion this morning, I want you to reflect on what it means for you to be faithful to God what it means to live like Christ and what it means for us to be a gathered and a united community on the same mission for Christ. This this is an opportunity for us to reflect on areas in our life that that we've been holding back from Christ, areas that, that we have messed up in, areas that we might have been living in sin. And in this moment, we can offer it freely back to Christ, who already died for our sins on the cross, who already made a way for us to be restored so that we can be a community that is offering the restoring hope of Christ. Would you stand with me? And if you know the Lord's Prayer, would you say that with me as our joint prayer together? Our Father, thou art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us and deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. It was on the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed. The day before he would offer himself up on the cross for our sins. That he gathered his disciples together. And after a shared meal together and giving thanks, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Thanks for joining us today. We would love to continue the conversation and connect with you. Comment, like, subscribe, follow us on the socials at rnaschurch or our website, rnaz.church.